Most of us wrestle with some combination of fear, worry, or anxiety. For some of us, it's a daily battle. But the reality is, everyone worries about something. I'm Adam Hamilton, author of the new book and Bible study experience, Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. Over a five-week period, we'll explore the most common worries and fears experienced by Americans today. We'll consider the anatomy of fear, the actual physiological processes behind our experience of fear. Then we'll explore proven practices to deal with our fear and to look at the important role faith can play in helping us live unafraid with courage and hope. While you may always have to live with a measure of fear, you don't have to live afraid. Join me together as we will come to understand that courage is not the absence of fear, but it is the act of doing, living, and being, despite our fears, secure in God's love. Good morning, friends. Uh, welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest. We're glad you're here. If you'd like to let us know you're here, you can text the word welcome to the number 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself and you'll get more information about The Well. We appreciate you being with us this morning. This is already week three of our new series, Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. It's based on a book by a pastor named Adam Hamilton. He's a pastor in Kansas City, and every week the, the weekly message coincides with the reading in the book, and we have a Wednesday online connect group that is reading through the book and discussing it together. And so if you're in that group, you just read part three, obviously, for week three uh, to be ready for this Wednesday. But um, the book addresses common fears that everybody faces. And last week we talked about some of the, the fears of, of other people that are affecting our politics right now. This week we're talking about fear of loneliness, fear of being alone, fear of rejection, feeling like we're not good enough, that people won't accept us. And that's a feeling that is common to most people. Especially now, we are living in one of the most isolated times in our country's history. If you think about it, we were already living in a time of loneliness, you know, with high mobility and, and people move around a lot for jobs and we have you know, walls and gated communities and we tend to just you know, use the garage door opener, park the car, don't talk to the neighbors that much. And we have to intentionally seek out community in our society anyway. But you add to that right now, social distancing due to COVID-19. And I mean, definitely, we are living in one of the most isolated, lonely times in our history. For some of us who live alone, you, you rarely see people outside of, I mean, outside of, uh, you know, Skype calls or, or Facebook message calls or whatever. I had somebody say to me recently, she said, I don't want to die from COVID, but I also don't want to die from loneliness. I, I can understand how she feels. And of course, we listen to the CDC and we practice social distancing, but it, it takes a toll on folks. Now add to that, even beyond the physical distancing, most of us have experienced rejection in our lives. And, and many of us or most of us wonder if we're good enough at times. And that can, that can affect us to the extent that in all of our relationships, we can keep people at a distance and you know how this works. If we felt like people have rejected us before or hurt us before, we can kind of build a wall between ourselves and other people. We can keep people at arm's length because we just don't want to go through that fear of rejection again or that pain of rejection again. And we just think because it happened once, it'll happen again. 
So as we look at this message this week, if this message would prompt you to, to say, you know, maybe I should talk to somebody about that and you would like to talk to a counselor, I would be glad to refer you to a counselor. If you live in our area here in Phoenix, if not, I know there are counselors in your area, wherever you are, who could talk with you about those feelings and about your experience of the past. Not only that, some of us have experienced rejection or experienced pain at the hands of church people or spiritual authorities. And that that pain threatens to even cut us off from a church community because one of the ways we experience companionship and communities in a, in a church, at least for, for people who want to follow Jesus Christ, we have the church, we have each other to experience community, but there are some people who they feel like they don't have that because they've experienced that pain of rejection or pain of mistreatment in the past. Again, if it would be helpful to talk to somebody about that, I would be glad to refer you to a counselor, in our area at least. Because a sermon, it can only do so much. But it may be that this could, this could be the first step in talking to somebody about that, that fear that you have that leads to this experience of loneliness or being cut off from other people, even cut off from, from a church family because of pain in the past. So just wanted to say that up front. This message can bring up all kinds of feelings and, and um, you're not alone. And reach out to me on Facebook. I would be glad to refer you to somebody if that would be helpful. So um, like most weeks in this series, we're watching a video by the author of the book, Adam Hamilton. Again, he's a pastor in Kansas City. And, and so we're watching him give a message on each topic from week to week. So let's watch now Fear of Being Alone uh, with Adam Hamilton. A series of sermons in which we're dealing with fear. Fear is a common experience for us as human beings, and we're looking at different things that we fear. And this week, we're going to talk about the fear of being unloved, the fear of being alone, of experiencing chronic loneliness in our lives. And uh, this is something we all have experienced. We all know what it feels to be lonely. We all know what it's like to feel unloved at particular moments in time, and some of us struggle with that on a regular basis. And so we're going to try to figure out how do we deal with these feelings and these fears of being alone, being unloved, being uh, lonely. Now, uh, this has become a major focus for researchers in the United States and in Great Britain. Uh, recently, there was a documentary that was put together by a woman named Sue Bourne. It was uh, produced by BBC and shown on the B British Broadcasting Company's network. And uh, the, the film was called The Age of Loneliness. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about the age of anxiety or high anxiety. But this film looked at the fact that really one way of characterizing our common current age is the age of loneliness. And Sue Bourne was the director of this, the producer. She wrote this, we're all a bit scared of loneliness, of being alone, of being left, of, being, of not being loved or needed or cared about. Lonely, she writes, hits a spot of fear in all of us even if we don't acknowledge it. We all know that feeling of loneliness or feeling unloved. Now, I just remind you that loneliness is, an, is a feeling of isolation. It's a feeling that nobody notices, nobody really cares about me, they don't know who I am. There is no real connection there. We feel isolated. And, and you can feel lonely in the midst of a large crowd. You can be at Arrowhead Stadium with 70,000 screaming fans and you can feel very, very alone. And you can be all by yourself and you can feel not alone, 
right? You can be all by yourself and just enjoy the solitude. And in fact, all of us need solitude sometimes, right? We need to be alone. We need alone time. We need solitude. I'm an extrovert. I tend to spend more of my time with people. And there are times where I find I need silence. I need to be alone. I've gone to the Benedictine monastery uh, sometimes for several days at a time. And the first day is horrible for me. It's like, you know, just no silence. You can't talk to anybody. It's total silence. By the time I get to the second day, I go, oh, this is why I need this. And so, you know, we have need for solitude. Solitude and being lonely are not the same thing. And I discovered the importance of solitude and alone time recently. I usually work four or five nights a week. And in addition to the daytimes, I have meetings and other things going on in the evening. And uh, a, a week, three or four weeks ago, I had no evening meetings. And so I was home every night with LaVon. And when I got to the third night, she said, don't you have some church thing you got to be at? Isn't there something you got to go do? I was horning in on her alone time, and she, you know, it was fine for two days, but, you know, three days in a row was just a little much, Adam Hamilton time. And so, um, so we know we need that kind of alone time. We need some solitude in our lives, but we also need community. We need connections. We need companionship. That's a fundamental need in our lives. Even for those of you who are introverts, we find that we have this need. So I just remind you in the very beginning of the Bible, we have two creation stories, one in Genesis chapter 1 and one in Genesis 2 and 3. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that God creates certain things on day one, and at the end of the day, uh, the Scripture says, God saw that it was good, and then he creates the second day, and God saw that it was good, and the third day, and the fourth day, and the fifth day, and the sixth day, and finally you get to the seventh day, and the Scripture says, and God looked at everything that he had made, and he saw that it was supremely good, right? So throughout the entire first chapter, we find this picture of God pronouncing what he has made as good. You get to the second chapter, and for the first time, you find God saying that something was not good. Listen carefully to these words. After God had made the first human being, placed him in the midst of paradise in the Garden of Eden, we read these words. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the human is alone. It's not good that the human is alone. John Milton, the 17th century author of Paradise Lost, once noted this, loneliness is the first thing that God's eye said was not good. Everything else was good, but in this case, this was not good. Loneliness is not good. Now, you know, we recognize that we as human beings have this need for companionship. Really, all the animals do too. I don't know, how many of you have dogs and cats? Where do they most like to be? under your feet, right? If you're in the house, don't they want to be in the same room that you're in? If they don't, you might want to do a little therapy with your dog. But um, <laughs> generally speaking, they like to be in the same room their, their people are in. Uh, we had two horses at one point, uh, Captain and Moon Pie. And if we had to take one of the horses to the vet, the other one would run back and forth across the fence line, whinnying and neighing the whole day until their buddy came back because they needed to know their buddy was coming back. At night, we would put them in the stalls, and, and there was kind of a tall uh, wall separating the two of them. And Captain was a pretty tall horse, a pretty large horse, and he would lean over the wall and look with his left eye to make sure that Moon Pie was in the room next to him. And if he was, then everything was okay. But if he wasn't there, it really upset him because he wanted companionship. Horses wanted companionship. All of us have need for companionship. By the way, when God decided uh, that it was not good for the man to be alone, you remember what he did? He made the new and improved model of the human being, right? <laughs> human being 2.0. And, uh, and, and that story is in part about marriage, but it's not just about marriage. It's just about companionship. God said, I will make him a helper as his companion. And what we recognize, whether you get married or not, and people are waiting longer to get married, some people are deciding, you know, I don't know if I ever want to get married. And so it's not about marriage. It's about the need for other human beings. And we come to understand why we need this. You know, the first nine months of your life are spent inside the womb of another human being. And every day during those nine months, you hear the sound of a heartbeat. 
As soon as you can hear, you hear the sound of a heartbeat. You hear the sound of, of your mother's breathing. You hear the, the sound of her voice muffled speaking. Is it any wonder that when we're first born and for the first few months after we're born, we wake up in the middle of the night crying and it's not that we need to be changed and it's not that we're hungry. We just want to be held, right? And it's interesting, when you get to the end of life, you find people in care centers and nursing homes, you know what they most crave? It's for another human being to come and touch them to sit down with them, to look them in the eyes. Even if they can't remember their name, they long to have another person who's going to connect with them. This is fundamentally how we're wired as human beings. Now, we're all going to know loneliness from time to time. There are going to be moments where we're disappointed or hurt or we feel unloved. There are going to be times where we feel like we're all alone in this world, and that's par for the course. We're going to experience that from time to time. But what happens in those times is sometimes we begin to catastrophize. We've learned this word. It means that we begin to assume the worst. We begin to think, you know what? I not only feel unloved now, I am never going to feel loved again. I not only feel friendless now, but I will never have a friend again. In fact, nobody would want to be my friend. Why, why would anybody want to be my friend? I'm not very smart. I'm not smart enough to have good friends. I'm, not, I'm too fat. I'm too this or I'm too that. Why would, if, if people knew who I was on the inside, they would never want to be my friend. And so these tapes begin to play in our head about all the things, you know, that this is going to be this way for the rest of our lives. It strikes me that, you know, it doesn't matter how famous you are, you still struggle with these kind of feelings. Einstein once said this, it is strange to be known so universally and yet to be so lonely. Einstein. Anne Hathaway, one of the most uh, successful actresses in our time, said this, loneliness is my least favorite thing about life. The thing that I'm most worried about is just being alone without anybody to care for or someone who will care for me. Now, loneliness, when, when it becomes chronic, when we catastrophize it, when we begin to think it's always going to be this way, I'm, I'm going to feel this way forever, I'll never have any friends, what happens is we tend to withdraw then because, see, I'm afraid to put myself out there because I'm afraid you're going to reject me. You won't really like me. You don't want you know, if you knew me, you really wouldn't like me, so I don't want to talk to you. So, so now I begin to withdraw to protect myself, but in the process of withdrawing, what happens is I make myself even lonelier. I take away the possibility for me to have real companionship, and now this becomes a chronic condition in my life. I'm chronically feeling unloved. I'm chronically feeling lonely. And what researchers have found, both in America and in Great Britain, is that this is becoming a serious crisis for many people. It has become an age of loneliness. And researchers in Great Britain had looked to see what impact does this kind of chronic extreme loneliness have on people's, not just their psyche, but on their physiology. And a group of researchers in Great Britain found that the impact of chronic long-term loneliness has, is roughly the same on your physiology, on your physical health, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's what they likened it to that this impacts so much of your life, your physiology, you can actually die of loneliness, they're saying. Now, why are we so lonely? And it's not hard to figure out. You know, as we begin looking, we live in a very different age than any era that's ever been for human beings before. So in 100 years ago, people were born in a town, they grew up in that town, they worked in that town, they lived in that town, they grew old in that town, they retired in that town, and they died in that town. Today, only 24% of Americans end up living their whole life in the same town. So most people move, we're a very mobile society. The latest information I could find, and this is a few years back from the Census Bureau, is that the average American will move 11.7 times in their lifetime. 11.7 times. So just understand, you move away from home, you graduate from high school, you move away, you're severing your root system there, right? Maybe you keep a few friends, but mostly you severed it, you go off to college. You spend four years with a group of people, and then you sever that root system and you go somewhere else to work, right? And, and then you move 11.7 times in your life, you, know, you move 10 or 11 times, and what happens is every time you move, you, you build a network of friends in your neighborhood, 
And then you relocate, and suddenly you don't have those neighborhood friends anymore. The people who come over when you're sick and you just make sure you're okay or bring over food or mow your yard when you can't get out, you broke your leg or whatever it is, you've lost those people. Now you've got to start all over again. But this is just par for the course for us today. We are just going to move multiple times. Now that lessens the older that we get, but we still find ourselves even in midlife and beyond uh, moving. Then, then we move beyond that and we find that uh, jobs, right? So it used to be that the average American had two or three jobs in their lifetime. Actually, there was a time you had one job, but then two to three jobs. I was reading an article in Fast Company last week that said that millennials should plan on changing jobs every three years if they want to get ahead in life every three years. Now, you're spending 40 to 50 hours a week with the people that you work with, and you're developing relationships, and then you're going to give all those up every three years and start all over again with somebody else. <clears throat> then we talk about divorce, and something like 40% of all first-time marriages are going to end in divorce. And so when we get a divorce, we find the severing of all of those relationships. We don't mean it to happen that way. We don't think it's going to happen that way, but often it does happen that way, and we lose many of those friendships. And then we uh, go through to retirement, and finally we get to retirement, and we're so glad we no longer have to show up for work anymore, but suddenly the people that you were meeting and connecting with for 40 or 50 hours a week, you no longer have those relationships. And then, you know, we've got in our minds that what you really want to do when you retire is go somewhere where it's sunny all the time. You want to move to the villages in Florida. Hey, folks in the villages, nice to see you. We've got a whole bunch of folks in the villages who worship with us every week. Good to see you. Uh, we have folks in Scottsdale. Hey, folks in Scottsdale, nice to see you. We've got some in Mexico. Great to see all of you uh, by video screen. And, and so you move, you retire, and you move. Now, if you're an extrovert, that works out okay because you moved to your new community and you've, lost, you know, you've left behind all those friendships. Maybe you can coax a few friends moving with you, but if you don't, you know, you're going to go out and make, meet new friends. If you're an introvert, you just cut off all of those friendships you've built over the course of a lifetime, and now you're going to end up somewhere where you have to start over again. And it's not so easy for you. And you know what's interesting is the greatest indicator of happiness in retirement is not how much money you have in your 401k. Now, clearly, if you're struggling every week, that's going to be a problem. But the greatest indicator, researchers say, for happiness is not how much money you have in your 401k, how many rounds of golf you can play in a week, or how many days of sunshine there are wherever you retire. The key, the number one indicator for how happy you'll be in retirement is relationships. How many meaningful relationships do you have in retirement? And so we've done all of these things that tend to cut off relationships, you know, at a certain point, certain junctions in our lives. Is it any wonder that this is the age of loneliness? Then we have technology, and technology seems like it's going to be a blessing to us, right? Because now, like, you're following your Facebook friends from elementary school. How awesome is that? You can see what they're doing and what's going on in their lives and all these other people. And I don't know, how many of you have a Facebook account? Instagram? Anybody Instagram? A few less? Some? Okay. All right. Or Twitter? Okay. So we follow all these people on all these accounts. And one woman told me yesterday, she said, you know, I've stopped looking at Facebook. I just can't look at it anymore. Because, you know, stuff's going on in my life right now, and it's not just the greatest stuff. I'm going through a bit of a rocky time, and I'm looking, at, and what I see is all these happy people on Facebook. They post all these happy pictures of how wonderful their lives are, and these wonderful places they go. Look how they're smiling, and they're with all these people that they love. And I'm looking at this saying, would somebody please post a picture of the day that they're doing miserable, and they're having a horrible time? And it would make me feel better, but until then, I don't want to see how happy your life is and how wonderful it is because that's not how my life is going, and it's not how anybody's life goes 24-7, right? But this is kind of the impression we get by looking at social media. But it goes beyond that. You know, there's a way in which we have substituted real physical relationships for social media relationships or digital relationships, so we text each other, right? We let each other know how we're doing. Hey, I'm having a really lousy day today, and what you get back is a text that looks like this. Right? You get an emoji with a sad face. Oh, that's so helpful. I feel so much more love, and I feel better now that you emojied my, you know, your sad face. But let me tell you, that is no substitute for this. 
right? This is what a real relationship looks like. And this is what we've lost many times when we've substituted technology for a human touch. Now, therapists offer different suggestions for how to address our fear and anxiety around isolation. So each week in the sermon series, we're looking at what the professionals, the therapists say if you went to see a therapist, and then we look to see what is the scripture and how does our faith inform how we live with courage and hope. And so I'm I'm thinking about the therapist's responses, and of course, part of what they're going to try to figure out is why are you feeling so lonely? Like, what's behind that? And so part of what they're going to look to see is, you know, if you're afraid that you're going to be, you know, you're going to be left behind, if you're afraid that people are going to love you anymore, well, let's figure out what's the root cause of that fear, and they're going to look back to your childhood. They're going to ask you questions. They're going to say, well, when you were a kid, did your parents get divorced? Did you still see both parents, or did you stop seeing one of the parents? Or did you lose a parent? Maybe somebody died in your family. Or maybe were, were there times where your parents and you were little and they, didn't, they like left you alone when they shouldn't have left you alone at that early of an age? Because you see, all of those things come to factor into the tapes that play in our head. Like, and we don't even realize it. So my dad left when I was six. You know, if you love me, you're probably going to leave too. And now I'm afraid, and I don't even realize the connection between the two. So the therapist is going to help you start finding the connection, or somebody died, or, 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 or maybe it's that your fear, of, you know, your fear of being rejected, and you keep saying to yourself, I'm too fat to have people's friends, or I'm too dumb to have people's friends, or nobody's going to like me. And the therapist is going to go, well, let's talk about what your, you know, what your experience was when you were growing up. Did your parents talk to you that way? Did they tell you you were too fat? Or did you have friends who made fun of you? Or where is this coming from, this tape that's playing in your head? Now, one of the things they're going to recognize is, and help you recognize is uh, we talk about, again, this is catastrophizing. We are, we are seeing these things, and we're assuming that it's always going to be this way, and this is how everybody looks at me. And, and, and then they're going to say, well, you know, let's see how that becomes a filter through which you understand other people's experiences. Because a lot of times when we're feeling lonely or isolated or unloved, we are interpreting other people's actions in a certain way. So, so I think about this, you know, uh, somebody doesn't return your phone call. What goes through your mind when they don't return your phone call? They must not like me. Why are they ignoring me? Why are they choosing not to care? It couldn't be that they got 27 phone calls the day before, or they just forgot. Or this happened with me recently, where I found buried under, like, LaVon listened to the answering machine, and then it's no longer blinking that there's a message. And I found a message that's been there for four months that was from somebody wanting me to call them back, and I didn't know it was even there. So the fact that I didn't call them back isn't because I didn't like them. It wasn't because I was mad at them. I just didn't get the message. Right? I, this happens on Facebook all the time. So, uh, you know, I get Facebook private messages on Facebook. And I, I'm so grateful for that. That's just awesome. It's just that there are weeks I might get three or 400 of those private messages on Facebook. And so I try to respond to every one of them, but sometimes I don't get all of them responded to. And then a year later, I, somebody sends me another message, and I see I never responded to the one a year before. And I'm like, I am so sorry. And most people go, ah, it's okay. Adam gets 100 messages. I don't I understand. But, you know, there are some people who go, he's mad at me. He doesn't love me. I had this happen, actually, not long ago, where one of our members said, you know, you didn't respond to my Facebook message yesterday, and I know, you know, that's just a sign. You don't love me. You don't care about me. I can tell. You've never really liked me as a part of the congregation. I'm like, whoa, hold on a minute. Wait a minute. I actually do love you. I care about you. I just didn't see your message. Or maybe you're driving down the road, you wave at somebody, and they don't wave back, or you're, you know, you're walking down the corridor, and somebody doesn't stop and say hi or even smile at you. Or have you ever had somebody look at you kind of funny? Right? And so we assume, well, they're looking at me funny because they don't like me, that I look bad or I'm, uh, they don't want to be around me, when in fact the person was thinking while they were walking you know, about some experience that happened with their boss an hour and a half before. But you see how this works, how we begin to interpret the signs around us in the light of the tapes that are playing in our head, 
And so part of what has to happen is, you know, we got to unpack the tapes, we got to understand the filters, and then we can begin to question our assumptions about how we're interpreting that data. So one woman in our congregation wrote me this. She said, rejection for me came at an early, early age. Loneliness soon followed, then mental illness and relational conflicts. I've been in beautiful relationships that I have destroyed, I have destroyed, because I was afraid of others leaving me. My mantra was, I will leave you before you've had a chance to leave me. Everything they do, the other person does, is scrutinized, she writes, or tested to see if they still care for me. And when I finally test them beyond what they can bear, it breaks both hearts. Those I care for the most are the ones that I fear losing the most. It is hell on earth that I experience daily. And this is one of those people who actually she finally defriended me on Facebook because she thought I was ignoring her because, and she was so hurt by the fact that I just hadn't seen her message, but she thought I didn't care about her. I wonder if you ever assume the worst instead of the best about somebody else when they don't respond or they don't smile or they didn't wave or they didn't follow up on a phone call. And all of us have a chance or have a, a tendency to do these kind of things. So the therapist helps us question the assumptions, unwind and, and see the filters that we're seeing and experiencing through, uh, things through. And then I just mentioned, I just remind you, you know, some of the common thera you know, therapeutic methods for people who are maybe not struggling with this quite as seriously, but they're still feeling lonely and a bit unloved is to say, okay, so have you withdrawn and are you actually putting yourself out there to be engaged in relationships? If you are waiting for somebody else to come to you to invite you to become a part of their network of relationships, it's not going to happen that way. You've got to put yourself out there in order to be engaged. I, I was thinking of a person in our congregation who retired and they didn't need to go back to work. They retired and it was great and they were excited and they, they spent all day watching TV and, uh, and sitting with their cat and their dogs and, and uh, shopping and doing some other things. But, you know, after about six months of that, they began to feel like, I, I got to have something else in my life. This is making me crazy. And, uh, and so uh, I actually know four or five people in our congregation who are, uh, work at Costco serving uh, the, the samples that you get when you walk through Costco. I love those guys. And <clears throat> most of those people don't need the money. Do you know why they're Costco sampler givers, whatever you call those folks, hospitality people? Because they need to be around people. They need connections. You know, and that, when I finally understood that, I thought, okay, I wanna, I'm going to actually talk to those folks a little bit when I'm taking their samples. You know, I'm going to see how they're doing. I want to at least be friendly with them because they don't have to do this for the money. They're doing it because they want to connect with people. So you know, the therapist is going to say, what groups have you belonged to? Why don't you join a group, a club? Why don't you get involved? Why don't you go out and, and do community things? Why don't you volunteer somewhere? And all of these are things that are important if we're going to move beyond our loneliness. Instead of withdrawing, we need to actually take the risk and put ourselves out there. By the way, you know, we have our uh, planning, our financial planning, and we have our 401ks, and we do all this, you know, we meet with financial planners, and we do all these kind of things to make sure that we're ready for retirement. But what I find interesting is that there are times where, you know, instead of spending so much time planning for our 401k, we ought to be thinking about how do I plan for adequate relationships when I retire? If the single most important factor in our retirement for our happiness, successful retirement, is actually being with people, then maybe we ought to be making a plan to say, how do I, over the course of my lifetime, develop significant relationships that I maintain and sustain so that when I'm older, I have meaningful relationships that sustain me still? That's probably far more important than the financial planning that we're doing for our long-term health, the length of our lives, and the quality of our lives. All right, so that leads me to finally talk about what our spiritual resources are that we bring to the table when it comes to loneliness. And you know, these spiritual resources are very, very simple. 
But in the case of loneliness or feeling feeling unloved, this is a central focus of the gospel. And God's response, God knows that we're going to have these feelings of uh, loneliness or the feelings for a need for connection or the times that we feel unloved. God knows this, and God gives two answers to this fundamental need within us. And by the way, I was reading the existentialists this week, the existential philosophers, in particular some who are atheists, you know, they were like, hey, this is a, in fact, some of them said this is the defining characteristic of being a human being is loneliness. Because you are alone in this world. You have a brain, you are an individual, you are alone, you can't always count on other people. You gotta deal with it, just deal with it. This is the reality of being a human being is you are alone in this world. But you know, the Bible offers a very different answer to that question. It recognizes the fact that we are alone, sort of. And it says, wait a minute, actually, in fact, you're not ever really alone. There are two things the Bible offers us and Christian faith offers us to combat our loneliness and to help us live with courage and boldness and hope instead of fear. And they're very simple. I'll just mention them to you briefly. One is called the church. It's people. It's community. Right? And God has formed a community of people. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. Jesus' idea was that I'm not going to create people who are just my followers all by themselves. I'm going to bring them together because they're going to need each other. So one is the church and how we plug in and develop and find community among God's people. And the second one is our, what sometimes is called our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that term can seem a little syrupy and sappy to some people, so we're going to unpack both of those for a moment. But I want to begin with this idea of what the church is. So the church is a community of people who are tasked with loving each other. Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. In this the world will know that you are my disciples and that you love one another. The church is meant to be a community where people come together and they, and they find connections. So I, I started going to church when I was in high school. I began going to youth group. When I went to youth group, I found I didn't have to wear a mask. I didn't have to try to be something that I wasn't. I found there were people who accepted me. They loved me. I began to grow in faith with them. I, I, I have lifetime relationships with some of those people who are in my youth group. That became, for me, the most important community that I had. Here at Church of the Resurrection, you know, it's not just coming to worship. Of course, worship is great, and we try to build community by passing the attendance notebooks and have you look at it a second time to see who's sitting around you and wearing name tags, and, and we try to organize fellowship events here at the church. The new sanctuary is going to have uh, 44 small sections of 80 seats each with 10 people who are assigned to connect those people together. It's going to be awesome. It's going to totally change how we feel in worship in a sense of intimacy and connection and, and community. But it's not just coming to worship. And I found that out about uh, 18 years ago. Uh, the church was running about 3,000 a weekend in worship at the time. Some of you have heard me tell the story. And one day I turned to Levon and I said, do you ever feel lonely at Church of the Resurrection? And she said, you know, I do. I said, I'm feeling so lonely in the church that we started. And there are 3,000 people whose names I know. I, at that time I knew 3,000 names. And I said, I know 3,000 names, but I stand at the door And I say, hey, good to see you today. Thanks for coming. See you next week. Hey, good to see you today. Thanks for coming. See you next week. And I do that with maybe 1,500 people on a weekend, but I never have any meaningful relationships with them. It's the 30-second greeting. And I'm going to give that same greeting to you today when I'm standing out in the narthex. It's just that that doesn't make meaningful friendships. It doesn't create meaningful bonds. And I told Levon, I said, we got to do something. And I couldn't go to Sunday school because I was preaching during the Sunday school hour. And I said, we got to do something. How about if we start a small group, a Bible study together? I said, let's just come up with 12 people, kind of a diverse group, and let's, let's just see if anybody wants to come and join us. And I said, I don't want to be the leader of it. I just want to be with people. I'll lead it, you know, my share of the time, but, every, you know, we need other people to lead. And, and so we got this group together. 
And we started meeting in our homes. And, and over the last 17, 18 years, however long we've been together, we've developed significant relationships with the people who are in the group. Now, the oldest couple that we asked, we were in our 30s, but we also asked a couple that were in their 60s. They were in their early 60s to join us because we thought we want some diversity here. And they were like parents to the rest of us in the group. Most of the rest of us were a little younger. There was a couple who was in their 60s, a couple who was in their 40s, and then the rest of us were in our 30s. And we said, uh, you know, they're going to be like parents to us. And so they could teach us about things that we hadn't yet experienced in life. And, and, and so we had this wonderful, you know, journey. And last week, uh, that couple turned 80. They had their 80th birthday. And we went to their birthday party. And, and, of course, they're still in small group with us every week. And, you know, it was just this amazing experience. We were there and their kids and their grandkids and one other group of friends from Church of the Resurrection. And I look at them, and, and to me, they don't look a day older than they did when we started the group. They still look like they're in their 60s. And they're still vital and alive, and there's such joy. But part of what I think is the reason why they still feel that way and they have that is because they have a small group of people that they connect with and have relationships with that enriches their lives while it enriches our lives. I'm wondering, do you have something like that? And if you don't, I want to encourage you to consider getting more involved. See, we have Thursday Live for women. We have Building Better Moms. We have United Methodist Women with their circles. We have uh, Late Night Men's Group. We have, uh, we have Sunday School classes. We have small groups that meet in people's homes. We start new small groups all the time. We have 80 classes that are meeting on Thursday nights as a part of Care Night for you to connect with other people who are walking on the same journey that you're walking on. we got a thousand ways for you to get plugged in and involved, but I want to encourage you, you need that. And it will change your life, especially when you're growing together with people of faith. You're going to find that, that there's something happens both spiritually but also in your, you know, in your sense of well-being when you're traveling this journey with other people. We want to help you be able to do that. So there are ways for you to get plugged in and involved. The last thing I want to say about this is that this requires an intentionality on your part. It's not just I'm going to come and then hopefully people will love me. You've heard this before. The only way to have a friend is to be a friend, right? And so part of this is that when you show up at church, and I just want, I'm, I'm begging for your help on this. When you show up at church, do you know that every Sunday there are people walking here who feel lonely and unloved? Every Sunday. And they walk into the 1045 service, and part of what I wonder is when they walk out, will they still feel as lonely, isolated, and unloved as when they walked in? Or will you notice that there's somebody who's sitting by themselves and reach out to them? Or will you notice there's somebody who looks like they're crying? Or will you notice there's somebody who looks like they're here for the very first time? <clears throat> and will you at least take the time to say, uh, hi, you know, I'm so glad that you're here. And tell me your story. And I'll tell you a little more about my story. Or just, just to connect even for a few minutes. But we have got to be that kind of community. And that means all of us owning a bit of the responsibility for looking after each other, for being one another's keepers helpers, partners, companions on this journey. All right, so, so I want to end with this idea. That's the first part, God's answer to our loneliness, our existential angst related to, to being unloved or lonely is the community, the church. But the second answer God gives is He Himself. You see, God created us knowing He created us for a relationship with Him. He created us for companionship with Him. We were made in order to have God as a friend, as a companion on our journey. And the truth is, if we really believe this, we would know that we are never really alone. And, and, and then Christian spirituality is about cultivating our relationship with Christ. So some people talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus, and sometimes we don't know what that means, and it sounds a little sappy to us. So let's use the more you know, sophisticated term, Christian spirituality. Christian spirituality is about learning how to connect with God, open yourself to God, to invite the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, to be at work in you, to have such a connection with God, both through faith and through your spiritual practices, that you know that you aren't ever alone. 
You sense God as your constant companion. St. Augustine gave a quote. Many of you know it. It's a very familiar statement. He said, thou hast made us, this is a prayer he made, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. The deep longing of our heart for companionship <clears throat> is not only a longing for human companionship, it's a longing for companionship with God. And the existentialists who are atheists could never get this. But what you can get is the fact that God has said, I made you, I know you, I know you better than you know yourself. There's not been a moment of your life that I wasn't watching over you. I walk with you everywhere you go. You can push me away and I'm still going to follow behind. I know all the creepy, cruddy things you've ever done. I know every thought that transpires in your mind, and I still love you, and I still long to be your companion. The Scripture talks about God as being a friend to Abraham, a friend to Moses, to, to, to uh, King David. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples the night before he was crucified, he said, at one point you were my servants, but now I tell you, you are my friends, which is why the great hymn writer in 1855, the poet, could say, what a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. We have a friend. We have a companion. We have somebody who knows us and loves us more than we could possibly imagine or believe. The Scripture says how deep and wide is the love of God. It is relentless. It is fearless. It refuses to abandon you. It is a love of God that is demonstrated when Jesus came and in the end said, look, I love you so much, I'll even lay down my life in order to save you and redeem you from your loneliness and your lostness and your unlovedness. And our task is simply to trust that. And we trust it, and then we begin to live into it through our spiritual practices. I wake up every morning, and I say, Jesus, I need you. And I talk to him. Throughout the day, I have conversation with him. I read the Scripture, say, speak, Lord, I'm listening. Then I come to worship, and there I'm, I'm anticipating what I'm singing. I'm, I'm singing to him. When I'm, when I'm praying, I'm praying to him. When I'm listening, I'm listening for him to speak to me. And going out and serving him in the world, every day there's an opportunity to remember that he walks with you wherever you are, wherever you go. I was reading the story this week of a man who was a, a POW in Vietnam. For seven years he was there in a prison camp. Five years he was in solitary confinement most of the time. He said, the only way I did not lose my mind in solitary confinement was I remembered that I was never really alone, that God was with me, and that somehow if he was with me, it was going to be okay. I wondered, you know, that you were never really alone? that he is always with you. And when you cultivate the spiritual practices, when you're engaged in worship, when you spend time talking with him, when you open the scriptures and listen to it, you begin to find that your heart knows that you are loved and you are not alone and somehow it's gonna be okay. And that's what the psalmist said in the scriptures. We read these words in Psalm 139. God, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of the grave, in the Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. So you can use your imagination to imagine that people don't like you. You can use your imagination to imagine that you'll never be loved again. You can use your imagination to imagine how horrible it'll be to be lonely your whole life and all alone. Or you can use that same imaginative power and, and read the scriptures and take them at what they say and imagine that God is with you by your side. Imagine that you are never alone. Imagine that if you actually reach out and love other people, they might respond with love as well. Imagine that you are loved more than you could imagine or believe. And when you do that, you find that you are no longer afraid, but instead you live with courage and hope. Imagine that. Let's pray.
And I'd like to invite you just to whisper to God this prayer. God, thank you for loving me. You know everything about me and you love me still. I trust this. Thank you for always being with me. Help me to remember that. Help me to love you in return. Help me to seek you, to know you, and to share your love with others. God, as a senior pastor of this church, I pray for every one of us. Help us to be a church that is so filled with love for other people that when people walk in our doors, they say, I have never been in a place where I felt more love than Church of the Resurrection. Please help us, O Lord, to set aside our computers and figure out how we can physically love people. Help us, O Lord, to invest in relationships that will sustain us across the course of a lifetime and help us to be those kind of people that reach out to those who are lost, lonely, hurting, and unloved so that through us they might know that they are truly loved. In Jesus' name, amen.